a user from Twitter told me, you know, a way that I can connect my particular matter sensor with a alleged strike that I can place outside my house and the neighbors can see that the pollution is high. So in this case, I have to help them set up a system to do just that, and it's very effective. Hello there, and welcome to Let's Talk Clean Air, where we find out more about how clean air can affect the quality process for you and the workplace. My name is Dusty Rhodes, and joining us today is Soterius Papathaniasiou, an air pollution expert with substantial experience in the field of environmental issues and advocating clean air initiatives. He's written three books on air pollution and curates a popular blog on the topic. He's joined by Anders Sundvik, who has an impressive 20 years working with Camfil, the global leader in air filters and clean air products. Anders is the VP of their research and development lab in Sweden. So, Tyrius, if I could start off with you, I'd love to know more about your blog, which is all about clean air initiatives. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah, uh, my blog is a side project of mine, which I try to educate. First of all, it is called CDR, and through it, I try to make people understand that we cannot see air pollution most in most cases. So we have to uh, invest in technology in order to be able to measure and see what's going on with the air. And I use my blog as a tool in order to make my voice uh, available all around the world. And it keeps it very up to date as well, as, uh, unlike books, because once a book is published, it's kind of very much a fixed thing. But you have written three books. What, what, what have the books been uh, about? Yeah, exactly. The books contain the same material as my blog. It's a more formal way to communicate and share my knowledge with the rest of the people, especially in some places that they are not uh, aware of my blog or maybe uh, kids because I have written some books uh, for kids, uh, can also uh, benefit. So tell me about what, what is it that makes you passionate about air quality? What kind of got you interested in this field? Not, nothing specific, to be honest. I have been asked a lot about it. Uh, I don't have any health issues. As a proactive person, I think that we have to be ready and prepared to address everything before they get worse. I saw um, in my early adulthood that air pollution is a problem that is not regulated very often or when there are some regulations from the governments, they are not applied or they are not followed. So I, I tried to make people aware of the issues. And what do you find is the, the one kind of common issue that people just don't understand, that they kind of go, oh, I never realised that? Yeah, you know, in most cases, people think that uh, air and air pollution or smoke, it is something that it disappears. It's not there. Or if you burn something right now, it may create some smoke and you will see it, but after a few minutes, it will disappear. But this is not the case. It may stay there for a longer time through particular matter, uh, tiny particles which we humans are unable to see or other pollutants, uh, gases, etc., can affect our health. Okay, Anders, let me just let you come in there. What do you want to add to that? Exactly like uh, Satorius says, it's, uh, air pollution is very abstract to most people. We uh, at Canfield, we typically compare uh, the 
the health aspects of clean air and air quality, we compare that to the focus that you put on food and wa drinking water, which is much more abstract because those are things that you can touch and feel in another way than you can on, on air. So people tend to think a lot more uh, on those uh, things than they think about uh, the air quality they breathe. But you actually consume a lot more air than you consume both water and food. So I think it's very important to make people aware of the importance of what we breathe and exactly like Satorio says, it's nothing that goes away. Air is something that you need to take in constantly to survive. So you cannot just stop. Uh, you can choose not to drink a glass of water if you don't want to or don't eat certain food and you can wait for a couple of hours or even a couple of days uh, if, if necessary. But air is something that you need to take in all the time. So it's very, very important to us. And, and breathing is unavoidable. Uh, so it's uh, it's very important to see what we can do. So Terius, maybe you can explain this to me, because as we're saying, air, you can't see it, so you don't think about it. If you can't see it, how do you measure it? And can, can you tell me about the various different measurements that are usually carried out? Yeah, it depends. If you want to measure some gases or if you want to measure particulate matter, tiny particles, uh, sometimes we call them aerosols, you need some instruments or some sensors that are able to scatter light on them and, and, and measure the presence. But again, you need some special instruments, lasers, etc., in order for them to, to measure them. Then you get a value, a number, which we have classified into safe or unhealthy or moderate or severe, depending where you are in, around the world. And is it just one evaluation that you have? Because I would imagine that air, like water, is made up of, of different components. So do you, are you able to measure each of them individually? Yeah, of course. Uh, in the air we breathe, there are a lot of elements, oxygen, uh, CO2, uh, nitrogen, etc. But we do not uh, pay attention in the quantities of oxygen, for example. But we pay more attention, for example, in the concentrations of particulate matter or in the concentrations of... Uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, which are the most common uh, indoor indicators of uh, poor air quality. I hear CO2 monitors being mentioned a lot these days. What are they used to measure in the overall scheme of things in measuring air quality? Well, they help us understand if we ventilate enough indoor environments because without we expel a lot of CO2 and it builds up uh, really quickly indoors when you don't uh, ventilate manually by opening a window or uh, through automated systems like HVOC. So they're very important for that. There's also, of course, with uh, with COVID and everything going around, there's particles floating through the air and you've got all kinds of organic things when people sneeze. Are you able to measure them separately as well? We cannot measure if the origin of the particular matter comes from, from a human. But yeah, we can measure that there is substantial concentration of particulate matter indoors that we may need to address or filter the air, which is the best way to do it, and then bring fresh air from outside as well. There is so much that we do know about air and to be able to measure it. What are the limitations to understanding air quality? Uh, for everyday people, we need better education and we need to educate people from a young age what is air pollution and what is the air we breathe and its composition or the human activities, uh, anthropogenic activities that may produce pollution and we may need to avoid in order to address uh, all this, uh, all the impact it has. 
Then also, naturally, when you are taking a measurement or doing any kind of a test in something, you're almost doing it in perfect circumstances. Do you know what I mean? Like I can imagine going into an office building, if you were going to measure the air quality in there, you may do it in the evening when there's nobody around. Whereas, would you have a different measurement if the building was full during the day? Are there any limitations there? Yeah, exactly. You're not going to take a sample and you leave. You you need to leave the device inside an office, for example, or a school and uh, measure uh, the air quality constantly throughout the day and through a long time because seasons also affect uh, the indoor air quality as well. Uh, right now, for example, I'm conducting a study here in Spain where I have placed some monitors inside some classrooms. And you can see, uh, depending on the temperature outside, the conditions in- indoors uh, change uh, drastically. And now that you're doing these studies this year, it would be different from, say, March of last year when COVID was just rolling out. Have you adapted for uh, the virus? No, because um, I used to measure the same things as before, you know, CO2, carbon dioxide and particulate matter, which are basic uh, indoor indicators. Excellent. So the technology that you're working with is is a proven technology and it's not just something that has mysteriously appeared in the uh, last six months. Anders, uh, can I ask you just about air quality sensors? What what kind of air quality sensors do you work with in the lab? In the laboratory, like uh, Satorio says, we, we use uh, very advanced equipment. It's uh, typically we're using different uh, uh, what we call a particle counter, and they, as Satorio said, it's laser particle counters. We uh, beam a laser towards the particles in the air, and then we measure the reflections. And by the reflections, we can count the particles, and we can also size them, how big they are. But this equipment has until recently been very expensive, and it has not been possible to really put into the field then on very rare occasions. And you can see that also when uh, cities are measuring air quality in a typical large city, you will not measure the air quality on very many spots in the city because it's just frankly been too too expensive. What is interesting in the development right now is that those particle sensors are becoming much cheaper. They're not going to be as sophisticated as the laboratory equipment that we have, but when not with the same accuracy, but with decent accuracy, to instead of costing tens of thousands of euros per sensor, they are now costing maybe 10 euros per sensor. It's a factor of thousand in between in cost reduction, which makes this technology available to, of course, using a completely different matter uh, in the future. And the same goes as Satori says, then we have all those gas pollutions. Uh, Carbon dioxide is one of them, of course, but ozone, uh, NOx and SOx, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide, and different volatile organic compounds. Uh, all those are also interesting to measure from a health perspective. And also there, the technology is going forward. And it depends a little bit between which gas you are measuring. And I'd say CO2 is one of the easier gases to measure. And that's also why we have more sensors available for them and that you can see more data on this. So technology is going forward. Uh, so stuff that we had in the laboratory only maybe just a few years ago can now be put in the hands of the public. So when you talk about all of those uh, different gases and everything that you measure, is there a hierarchy of importance? So like CO2 is easy to measure and we know that it's there, but 
where does it rate, if you like, in order of importance? Yeah, it's hard to say how you would rate it. CO2 is important because it affects the human very rapidly. When the CO2 level goes up in a conference room, every one of us recognizes the drowsiness that you feel. Yes, the CO2 level affects us immediately. Some other gases doesn't affect us in the same way immediately, but they have more long-term health effects. Ozone, for example, is very oxidative, for example, so it's not very good for you to breathe over a long time. VOCs, that's uh, typically solvents, for example, and we all know that that's not so good to breathe over time either. So I say those five that I mentioned, CO2, ozone, uh, nitrogen oxides, sulfur oxides, and, uh, and solvents, or in our chemical world, then volatile organic compounds. Those are like the, the five most important ones. And then it's just a matter of which ones can you measure. And, and that, that big cocktail also, all those different gases and all the particles, it's very difficult for the general, uh, general person just to take in all that and make some sense out of it. So I think you asked Satorius, you know, how, how can we, what is needed? You know, I think the, those air quality indexes that are out there to simplify this to the general public, that's, that's what we need. And then for the general public to understand what it means and what importance it has to them, that's what we will need going forward. Let me ask uh, Soterius there, in your experience, what range of particles are the most important to measure? Yeah, uh, I completely agree with Andres, but also uh, it depends the setting. Uh, for example, if you want to measure uh, the air quality in an office, you won't going to say, is it located near a busy street? Is it located uh, near a port or near uh, an industrial site? In this case, yeah, it makes more sense to measure uh, sulfur compounds or nitrogen uh, compounds. But if you are uh, in a place uh, like a residential place or where there may not be so much traffic or industrial sites around, etc., then there is no need to invest in, in, in so many sensors because sensors come with a cost and not everybody can afford them. Anders, this would probably be more your area because in the lab you would be looking at the kind of thresholds uh, that could be observed. Are you able to give me an example of a threshold that you would find in an office building in a, in a city and something that you might look for that might be more suburban? I think if you, if you look at the more suburban area, uh, then you would find typically larger particles in the air. You would see dust from the farms uh, and from the fields, uh, pollens coming from the, from the crops and from the trees. Those particles are relatively large. I used to say that the, the human being is also relatively well prepared to, to if you're not allergic, uh, if you're a healthy individual, then the human body is quite well prepared for those types of particles because they are being around for, uh, for the development and the evolution of the human being. But then there are other, when you come to a larger city, for example, then we suddenly are faced by completely other types of particles. You see a lot of combustion particles uh, from diesel cars, for example, from power plants and power generation. And those uh, uh, particles, due to very effective engines today and combustion pr processes in those uh, power plants, are very fine particles. They are in the micrometer range, so a millionth of a meter. 
and you don't see that uh, type of particles in the same quantities in the suburban areas. And I would assume, without being an expert or a scientist in any way, that the human being is much less prepared for those particles because of we haven't had the time to actually adopt to them uh, evolutionary. And also it's proven that those particles penetrate much deeper into your, uh, into your body. And it's also proven that uh, the very small fractions of those particles can be captured by your bloodstream through your lungs, equally as gases can be captured with your lungs and get out in your bloodstream. So, of course, uh, the more you move into an urban area, you need to look for those fine particles. We typically call them uh, PM1, uh, particles that are, uh, that are smaller than one micrometer. And then you need to start looking at all those gases that we talked about that you will not see so much in the suburban areas. We've been talking a lot about NOx, for example, with the, with the scandal of, of uh, diesel gate, for example. You have ozone generation due to combustion uh, in the cities, for example. Uh, all those areas which you will not have to worry so much about in the suburban area. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned PM1 there, uh, and I've heard PM monitors being, being mentioned as well. This is another type of monitor for, uh, for measuring air quality. It is. Uh, typically, when you read the newspaper and you talk about air pollution, outdoor air pollution, you talk about PM10 and PM2.5. Uh, and those are measurements, um, mass me measurements of particles of those certain particle ranges. Uh, why have we talked so much about PM10, PM2.5 in the past? Uh, my uh, assumption is that those particles has been possible to measure. And that's why we have also developed standards and uh, limit values for those particle ranges. When you look at PM1, which is much smaller particles, which more frames the particles generated from a combustion engine, uh, there we don't have any limit values today. Uh, or much less of those uh, limit values. They can be locally, but on a global scale, we still don't see uh, limit values on PM1. And we see very seldom that those particles are still being measured. And why is that? Because those, are, those particles are difficult to measure. Uh, and the equipment uh, to measure those uh, particles in an accurate way is, uh, is very, very expensive and difficult to handle. Let me ask Sotirius in your experience, because if the equipment is expensive and, you know, you can't have hundreds of them measuring everything, how can we ensure that that monitors are utilized to their full potential? Uh, you mean by the users? Yes. Yeah. Um, in this case, uh, sometimes um, the companies that build uh, their quality monitors, they try to lay the information as uh, easy as possible. And uh, this is what I do as well. I try to educate people in order to use the technology and the sensors uh, as much as possible through various uh, articles that I write. Uh, for example, uh, I remember um, a user from Twitter told me, uh, you know, a way that I can connect my particular matter sensor with uh, a LED stripe that I can place outside my house and the neighbors can see when they burn uh, wood to with burning stoves, that the pollution is high in my neighbor. So in this case, so I have to help them uh, set up a system uh, to, to do just that. And it's very effective. And that is really just taking kind of the technology of the monitor and the amazing and intricate things that it does and brings it down to the most 
simplest thing in the world is red danger. That's brilliant. Um, Anders, in the lab, do you strive to make things that simple or do you feel that there's a case for a lot of detail with the monitors? Uh, in the laboratory, we need a lot of detail, of course, when we develop our filters. Uh, for the end user? Uh, for the end user, uh, we strive for simplicity. Uh, and uh, we are also uh, trying to go towards that type of scale, uh, red, yellow, and green. Uh, but I think uh, the future is even f uh, demands more than that, I think. I, I go back to my analogy with, with food and water. Uh, let's take water as an example, for example. When you pour water out of your tap, you don't want to have a measurement device telling you whether the water is clean or not, uh, or how, how clean it is when you're drinking. You just want to, you need to expect that that water is clean when you, uh, when you pour it through the tap. I think that's the systems that we need to go towards. Some sort of control loop uh, and equipment measuring the air quality for you, uh, if it gets too bad, it will bring it back to a decent quality again without you even having to do anything at all about it. You would just have to expect that the air that you have in your room is good enough. I think that's where people want to go. People don't want to bother about what they're drinking or, or eating. They want to know that, that it's already quality controlled when they put it in their mouth. And it's same with the air, I think. That's where we need to go. So with coming in then with monitors and measuring air in, in a particular area, are the monitors able to tell us then if the filters in my system are working and doing their job, as you say? Uh, I think the monitors that are coming out now, uh, we have uh, one monitor uh, within Canfield that we have commercially available. We call it Air Image. That's a particle sensor that we connect to uh, an air cleaner. And if the, uh, the air gets worse in the room, the air cleaner will rev up, uh, clean the air, and maintain a certain predetermined air quality, predetermined by the user. Uh, so uh, is that technology available? Yes, it is, because we're already selling it. Uh, uh, the problem, as I see it, is that uh, many users, either in an office building, you have a central air handling unit uh, providing the air into the building, so you need to have connectivity to that air handling unit to control it. The problem is also that the air handling unit needs to take care of a lot of other things than just the air quality. It also needs to take care of the, uh, the temperature and the humidity and the CO2 level. So those are the primary, ta primary tasks of, a, of the air handling unit. So then I see, okay, so how do we take care of, of the rest of the problem, which is particle matters and other things? Maybe in the future, this needs to be two separate systems. One being the base, base unit, being the air handling unit, providing a base level of, of clean air uh, to the building. But then maybe we need also to complement that with recirculating air cleaners uh, throughout the building to ensure that we, in every individual spot of the building, have the desired air quality level. I think that's kind of, the technology may go, uh, how fast, we, we don't know. Well, you're working in the R&D lab, so mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> how hard are you working? <laughs> we, we're working hard. And uh, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a matter of uh, the cost of the sensors. The, uh, and not only the cost, it's also the, uh, 
the accuracy of them and how well they sustain their accuracy measurement over time also so that we can warrant the measurement also. And they need to be efficient as well, don't they, of course? Exactly. Let me uh, wrap up then with asking uh, Satirius, that is kind of Anders vision of the future and the direction we're going. Where do you see ourselves in maybe 10 years time? Uh, I'm a positive person. So I think uh, from here to 10 years, uh, things will be much better. There will be more regulations uh, and, and people will understand better. And hopefully uh, kids, the knowledge that I try to share with them, it will uh, bring uh, some benefits for all of us uh, in the future. Do you think uh, that we will have a system like you spoke of earlier, where you, you've just got a simple red flag to describe the quality of the air around you? Might we have TV monitors or, or something like that, giving a, a percentage score for air quality in a room or a building? I think yes. And I see a lot of interest from the real estate field that they do investigate right now. And many people ask, uh, what's the air quality in this area? Should I invest my money in a, buying a house there? All of these things uh, make air quality and air pollution more visible. Sotirius and Anders, thank you both very much for joining us on our podcast today. If you'd like to find out more about what we've been chatting about today, just follow the links in the show notes, including Sotirius's blog, which you can find at seetheair.wordpress.com. Of course, you'll find that in the description of this podcast on your phone or whichever device you're listening to us on. Uh, the show notes include links, contact details, anything else you might need to get more information. Our podcast today was produced by Camphill, a world leader in the development and production of air filters and clean air solutions. You can find out more about them at camphill.com. We have a brand new podcast for you every month, of course. To get it automatically, just click the subscribe or follow button on the player that you listen to us on right now. The next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you so much for listening.